Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome on to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe, and I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Janet Cole. And we have a really interesting conversation. I know you're going to enjoy it, so we're going to get straight into it. But before we do that, I had a little request. I know there's hundreds and hundreds of you listening to this episode, and I wonder if you would be willing to tell one other person about the show or post about it and tag me on social media like LinkedIn or Facebook or something like that. It really helps to have other people talking about it out there. Now let's get straight into this conversation. All right. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Janet Cole, who's the manager of the Kaipatiki Project. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, Stephen. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. No worries. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I think what you're doing is really important. And um, I want to find out a lot more about this project. But before we talk about that, I would love to get a bit more background. So in your case, could you tell us a little bit about where you were living when you were, say, five years old? Well, interestingly enough, if I did my pipiha, I actually uh, was born and bred in the same place that I'm now working, which is in uh, Birkdale Beach Haven, Oroamo, uh, of the North Shore of Tamaki Makaurau, Auckland. Wow. Um, in terms of what life was like, um, we walked everywhere. So we walked to school. So um, myself and my sister, who's just 18 months younger, and a lot of our friends just live up the road or um, around the place. And so we kind of gradually get a bunch of friends going up or down the road. Um, our The shops, oh, sorry, the um, yeah, the shops were just across the road and um, for the dairy and so on. And then a bit further, maybe 20, 20 minutes walk um, if we wanted um, a few more shops. And then we could jump on the bus to go up to Highbury, which was where the supermarket and things were. Um, we also had a local licensing trust uh, that's still there. So it's a dry area and um, community supported. And um, once I started going to high school, we kind of cut across the country. Um, a lot of the streams and so on that uh, have been built around now um, were places to play and walk through to get to school, arriving with clay and mud on your legs and having to wash up will be told off. <laughs> yeah. So, so it sounds like it was quite an outdoors sort of childhood then. Yes. And I think that's a real feature of the area and part of the reason why um, the Kaipataki project grew up in the area was that we uh, were surrounded by streams and little beaches. And then if we wanted to stretch our legs a bit more, uh, the East Coast Bays, uh, which is part of the, the Waitemata Harbour, so um, that's all safe swimming and white sand beaches. So, yeah, nice part of the world to grow up in. Yeah, it sounds like it. And what sort of things did you enjoy in, you know, sort of early years of, of schooling? Big reader and I always uh, played sport as well, um, kind of casually to start with. Uh, I think girls, the girls all played netball uh, primary school. And so a lot of team sport, working with groups. And um, we were also um, lucky enough to, at, at that point, the um, my primary school 
principle, spent a lot of time in the Pacific, and um, we all learnt uh, some te reo, some waiata. We had a kapahaka group for welcoming visitors to the school, and uh, a lot of us learnt uh, Pacifica performances as well and um, supported our uh, Pacifica and Māori co, you know, kids, the other kids at the school um, for those sorts of things as well. So, yeah, quite lucky from that point of view. Um, but definitely, yep, reading and, and uh, English, liked maths as well. Um, but that, yeah, expressing expressing yourself and presenting ideas, that discussion of ideas, really mm-hmm. important for for me. Yeah, no, that's great. And do you remember, like, your parents, were they interested in, I guess, issues or because where we're going with the conversation, we're probably going to end up talking about the environment. <laughs> so is that something that was present, you know, as a child or what were the issues of the day that you were conscious of growing up? We had activist parents. Um, they uh, believed that uh, everyone uh, should have access to healthy lives and purposeful lives. And um, they spend a bit of time uh, both professionally and, uh, you know, in their spare time um, helping out with community activities. So my mother was a teacher. Um, she had originally trained as a, um, a school for the deaf and um, taught in in schools for some time uh, with deaf students and um, she she continued to retain that school that skill and then um, with her she went back and retrained when we were small and um, got an English degree and then she um, went on to teach in high schools with that Um, and she eventually became a dean and was involved with coaching kids and um, doing wraparound support for families in our local area. I remember once um, we had uh, her little car, was a, the first car that she ever owned um, late in life was a tiny little mini, and um, she used to be able to pot around in that and get to school and so on with all her school books, and uh, someone sneaked in and, and backed it out of the driveway and stole it one night. Um, but it got returned with, and the kids had to come and apologize to Mrs. Cole. Sorry, Mrs. Cole. And it was in perfect nick when it got given back. So, um, she was, she was part of, um, she's Pakia. She was born in Poland, a Jewish family who got out of Europe. Um, and so she, uh, grew up in New Zealand and Australia. And, um, so, uh, she, really adopted her home place and joined the Māori Women's Welfare League in our area and she learnt te reo and um, she helped support a marae to get set up in the school and um, they were really active on a, a number of fronts. I remember being taken to um, anti-nuclear CND marches, being really little and um, working with the, um, you know, the, the, the fleet um, going down to meet them when they came back from Mororoa and things like that when we were kids. Um, mm. My dad was a graphic artist. He, he went to Elam Art School. Um, he left school when he was very young because it was during the war. And, um, yeah, but he he loved art. And to make money, he worked for an advertising agency. And then when he could, he worked for himself and did painting. And so he painted a lot of posters 
uh, for to invite people to protest or invite people to contribute to the issues of the day. And then when I got to high school, so 1981 for me was the Springbok tour in New Zealand, and we were very active and um, helping to paint posters and, and do things for that as well. It's really interesting to me hearing about people's life journeys and then asking that question about your parents, you know, because I think oftentimes there's a legacy that comes through from our parents that we don't always recognize. But it sounds like in your case, we, you know, potentially can draw some direct lines of what your parents were involved in and the idea that you're here to contribute, to actively participate in society, potentially to protest and just just before we move on from then them, um, what had shaped them? You, you mentioned the war, like that must have been a big influence for them as well, or or even for their parents as, as well. Yes, absolutely. So uh, my mother's parents, my grandparents on that side, um, they came out of Ukraine and in Poland, and uh, so they they moved. Uh, first to Australia and then to Wellington, then back to Adelaide and Sydney. My grandfather died in Sydney um, in a hospital there, and then my grandmother remarried and came back um, to Wellington and then to Auckland. And so my mother had quite an unsettled childhood, and um, but she also um, really understood what being different felt like her mother's accent was always uh quite different her mother wasn't confident um and she's she often would translate for her mother and um so so having that feeling and and then wanting to help uh kids through being a teacher to help them feel at home feel comfortable and what was in, what did inclusion look like um my father's side of the family he's fifth generation out of Scotland and uh, they originally moved to Otago, Central North Island, and around the Clutha. They were um, farmers and uh, through a number of generations ended up in uh, Central North Island near Te Kuiti, a little tiny sheep farming country called Waimiha. And um, during the Depression, uh, they have had to walk off the land, come to Auckland to look for work. And um, unfortunately, there was no work at that time. And he took his own life, my grandfather. And so uh, my father and his brother were sent to deal with and uh, for uh, children of single parents. And their mother had to work as a seamstress, so lived in different rentals and things around town. Um, and they were sent home to grandparents' places in school holidays. So, um, yeah, they were effectively all brought up as as only children. And I think from talking to other people, that seems to have been a common experience of that time because their parents weren't together, there was only one child, or else the kids had to be sent away. So they really valued family, both the migrant story and also the war experiences. And it was really important to them to give us a settled childhood as well. So we were in uh, the same house from the time we were born until I went to high school. So what's that, 13, 14 years, significant time. And we only moved up the road, really, at that point. So they stayed on the North Shore for um, the whole time. Yeah. 
That's, That's amazing. It's it's really interesting though to hear that the story. I mean, on on reflection, looking back at your parents' life and then you're being born into that particular family, like I can totally understand your mother's perspective, your father's perspective, in particular, your father's perspective, that he would want to provide a place for his children that would have been quite, you know, warm and nurturing, I can imagine, because of the contrast with his own childhood. So yeah, it's really, thank you for sharing. I really appreciate that. And then just in your own circumstance, like you mentioned Springboks in 1981 and, and that type of era, just take us up through that time, like getting towards the end of high school and yeah, what was forming you? What what were you starting to think about? What you know career options were there and what did you want to do next? Well, I think part of my experience of um, understanding that the protests around the Springbok tour had grown out of a partnership and relationship that people in New Zealand had formed with people in South Africa to try and bring about change and all of the different things that had been tried and that they were asking us to take a stand. So that demonstration of how that conversation can happen, it can be from the ground up. And also, I think a theme in our family and then into the community and my work is the strength of the collective. And I think, um, you know, Aotearoa, Māori culture, Pacific culture is a collective, they're collective cultures. And I think that has a really strong influence in who we are as a nation. And it definitely had, um, I think, so the Jewish um, culture is very collective as well. And so the combination of those for me um, means that working in a collective way is very important and that I can see that uh, that sharing, collaboration, the work that you're in, Stephen, and many of us um, who work to support uh, the for-purpose sector mm. um, about coming together. In this, we need all of us in the room to solve these complex wicked issues that we're facing together now yeah it's a great point and i like i like some something to pick up on what you said is that a different culture would have resonance with another culture because sometimes i think we do sort of categorize like in your case you're talking about like jewish ways of approaching things and then to our maori or maori ways for me um, i actually have a, a personal side which is my mother was from panama and, and Panama is in Latin America. And Latin America is a very different culture to say North America. So in Latin America, it's much more community focus, much more expressive, you know, um, people have strong opinions, but they're, they're, there's a, just a very different culture to other Western cultures. So for me, I think the, uh, just as an example, when I look at Maori culture and the community focus and people focus and then I look at my mother and her legacy of like Latin American culture there's a lot of resonance between those two as well so yeah 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 really interesting and I think um, we you know I truly believe we have more in common than we have um, you know rather than focusing on the differences there's always those commonalities you can find with people um, I was just thinking that actually your question was what was <laughs> in my head and where was I going to at the end of high school. So that was a, the long story um, to go about, go around and come back to. Um, I was interested in um, languages. So uh, 
as I said, we were lucky. We had um, a lot of Māori in the community and a number of them had um, become teachers in the school and were offering a strong Te Ao Māori, Te Reo and Te Kanga support in the school. And um, I was lucky enough that they were teachers while I was there. So in our intermediate school, um, we had Toi Mahi, Mahi, who is still a um, a, a great artist in, in New Zealand. And um, her and her husband, Barry Mahi, they taught, we, you know, every, uh, we had to, um, Māori, four times a week, the same as we did for English and mathematics and you wow. know, any subject. And I realise now that that wasn't a common experience. And that's um, that's very important to me that I honour their gift that we were given through that time. Um, and then when I went on to high school, um, we had Mrs. Marks, Mikey Marks, um, who supported us all. And I did Terrell for the first couple of years of high school as well. I regret not carrying it on, but then also I was trying to reconnect with my Jewish cultural side and um, Yiddish was the language of um, my family and that wasn't really, I didn't have access to that at that time. Mum only knew a little bit of that, a little bit of Polish and um, the closest I could get was to learn German. So I changed to learning, learning German at school, which I really enjoyed um, and gave me insights to European languages as well. And I, I truly believe that um, uh, language gives you an insight to culture and is, is foundational for that. So I, I'm really pleased that I did do that. So then with I was enjoying languages, I was interested in culture, I was interested in how some of some of our words in all of our cultures just can't be translated uh, directly to other languages because they represent a cultural worldview. And so having separate, parallel and interrelated worldviews really interested me. So I applied to do uh, American Field Service, AFS, um, to go overseas for a year for my final year of school. Successful in that, went to Malaysia and completed my final year in um, or near uh, Kuala Lumpur in a place called Pataling Jaya, Satellite City, and lived with a Pakistani Muslim family for a year and then mm. uh, came back to start university after that. Wow, quite an experience at a young age because you would have been, what, 16 yes. or 17? Or... <laughs> yes, I was, 16, 17, that's right, over that period. It kind of spanned a birthday. Um, it was, I mean, I was, I don't know, uh, I guess looking back, you know, at the time I was idealistic, I was a bit naive, um, I was very, you know, a bit of a Pollyanna and um, wanted to see, make connections and learn. I did do those things, but it was very challenging and in retrospect, uh, somewhat disruptive, both for our family and also for my uh, kind of steps. But then it was super enriching as well. And I always value the things that I learned through that. So including another language. Mm. Yeah. And what made you, did you get to choose where you went, like in the world? Or you just put your name in and they said you're going to this particular place? Or uh, You just indicated if you wanted to go to America or uh, um, another a place that wasn't America. 
effectively. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so I wanted to go somewhere else that spoke another language. That was really my interest. It, uh, again, in retrospect, um, I think even though Americans speak English, that doesn't mean we're of the same culture. And it also would have been a huge learning curve. So, you know, but you, you don't know what you don't know. No, that's right. And that's the thing with life. There's different cross crossroads in the in the journey that we're all, all on. Um, just before we move on, I'm really interested in one concept that you're talking about, which is that words that we use or the language that we use, that different cultures would have almost different meanings behind the words, and that some cultures would have concepts or ways of doing things that are expressed in a particular way in the language, that when you come to translate it, there's actually a poverty of translation because you're taking a simple word like fana, for example, and I'm only, I'm literally making this up as we're going, so bear with me. But you, if you translated that to English, you would say, oh, it means family, you know, but actually within the conception of this other worldview or other culture, it probably has a much deeper, more multi-layered way of that it could be thought of. Um, any thoughts on that? Absolutely. And I um, I think there are layers of learning for all of us in, in our own cultures and places as well. And so if you use the metaphor of um, going into saying, you know, we're talking about environmental, if we use nature as an example, and um, if you, you know, a seed falls from a, um, a mature tree, it falls or it's eaten by a bird or um, whatever, and then um, it finds a place and it's, it's, it might be um, quiet for a while then it emerges you get the leaves and then you get a early plant and then you get a mature tree and then you know it might be called a stripling or something like that we have our different words for those uh, different stages and then it becomes a mature tree and then it might fall and nurture the next lot that are coming through we have a lot of metaphors in english um, using that to refer to other things so we might talk we might talk about a tree a great a mighty tree has fallen um, and we all know what that we're not actually talking about an actual tree we're talking about uh, but but it has the resonance of when a tree falls it takes other things with it makes a space but that's a space that other things can grow up so if we're talking about community for example um, an organize, uh, say a leader of an organization steps away or passes away um, and that, that can be quite hard for an organization to come back from but it also creates a space that new ideas and things can come through and so um, you know we might say that in different ways if we come from different part of the country or different countries and then if you put things into other languages if we haven't shared that initial experience then you have to explain three layers down to get the understanding of what you're trying to say. And I think it can get lost in translation, even in English, with us, you know, even with everyone speaking English. 
um, just having that shared experience. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. It would be, it'd be an amazing thing. I don't even know how you would do it, but to somehow talk about the concepts that sit behind, you know, in a way you said it, the metaphors, you know, the expressions that we use, the the parables, the proverbs, the ways that we, the shorthand for something that's deeper. Because I think particularly when it comes like with Tereo, and, and I'm still on my early stages of a Tereo journey, but it seems to me like some of the the richness and the depth of these words, you can't just say, well, this is what it means in English. Like there's a whole vocabulary of culture that sits behind those words. And I don't know how you would do it, but it's almost to visually represent what these words mean. I see it a little bit because I lived five years in Japan, so I learned Japanese. And to me, Japanese is very hierarchical. You know, there's ways that you talk to people who are your superiors, who are your like contemporaries, and then the way that you would talk to a small child or talk about a dog, different verbs, different tenses. Um, and so it's an amazing thing when you think about the the language and the culture and in some ways, which came first, the, the language or the culture. <laughs> yes. And um, so I think sometimes as um, Pākehā, we want to acquire the language we we just want to be able to say hello how is your day and see you later and um, this is where we keep the paper clips or something um, and we don't realize that when we say um, there will be a porphyry that actually there's a whole lot of layers of meaning in there and um, often um, I notice that oh I've been learning about how words break down and the sum of their meaning can give you more insight but there's also the story of the whole so for example the word poor for poor is night and it's also dark um Firi is weaving um or the strands for weaving and so bringing poor for together we are weaving our we're weaving together through that process um, to bring us together into uh, one so that we can have those relationships in future. Now, that's my learning to date, and I look forward to learning more about what that one word and concept um, brings, you know, what, what you're channeling when you access that word. And then if you combine it with other words, how you can build the picture. And I, I think that's fascinating and um it's good to do a lot of listening around those things yeah definitely well that's really good we went on a little divergent topic there but that's why I love the podcast because you end up talking about kind of random things but it usually comes back as well so coming back to your life and your journey what happened next after high school like that was an amazing experience overseas you come back was it a bit of reverse culture shock coming back to New Zealand or was it back into the stream of things here? Uh, it was a bit of culture shock. Um, I had decided I wanted to go to university and, well, I mean, this is, okay, this is, you know, hand up, I'm an old person. 
So this is uh, before we had computers, we didn't have mobile phones. There was in the house I lived in in Malaysia didn't have a telephone at all, didn't have a landline. And so communication with back home was by letters. Um, and so I got delayed information. My mother was very sick while I was in Malaysia. And um, that was quite a hard time. And when I came back, she wasn't entirely recovered. And the family, they, they, they tell a story that it's like being on two escalators, traveling at kind of different speeds. And then when you come back, you get back on the same escalator and you have to kind of, you know, align the speeds that you're traveling to come back together. So that was just within my family. And then some of my friends had finished high school and, you know, done exams or dropped out or whatever they'd done. And I missed all of those stories as well. So there's a bit of catch up. Yeah. And my mother, well-meaning uh, and it being helpful entirely, had enrolled me in university in a crazy combination of subjects that I would never have put my hand up for. And at that <laughs> point, I wanted to do law, but um, I just couldn't. I didn't realize you didn't you could have withdrawn from programs. So I just failed one of them and couldn't get in. So I had to reorient. Um I went back to doing a Bachelor of Arts, majoring in English. Um, but really my true passion was creating the environment for change for the collective. And I got really involved in that and I got elected to be on the New Zealand University Students Association. And so I moved to Wellington to be a representative based there and, and advocating to government for better conditions for students. And I'm Wow, so that's really that. interesting. And what year was this then? 1980? <laughs> yes, uh, 82 to 85, I was at Auckland University. And in 1986, I was at NZUSA in Wellington. And the amazing thing for people listening is like it is it is a different era because <laughs> I I share a little bit with you. And when I went to Canterbury University, I was on the UCSA, so the University of Canterbury Students Association. So I got some insights into student politics. <laughs> um, but even when I by the time I had gotten into universities, that was 1995, um, it it had changed you know, there were there was fees introduced and it was quite a different system even at that point. What was it like, you know, the Wellington politics advocating for students? Yeah, describe that era. We were focusing on student fees. So the Labour government of the time was uh, looking at bringing student fees, which had been brought in in Australia. So we were campaigning against those. And as part of that campaign and others, um, we looked to link up with other organisations. So we were talking with the Council of Trade Unions. Uh, we were talking uh, with women's groups. We were talking with um, Māori and Māori sovereignty groups and also um, the organisations that were uh, Māori organisations that were taking the claims for um, Māori rights to the airwaves at that time as a way to reflect Te um, I think that was a, around the time or soon after that um, uh, uh, Jeffrey Palmer was um, starting to look at setting up state-owned enterprises. Uh, so it was a yeah, it was a, a pretty energetic time. Um, I remember interviewing Helen Clark, who was the spokesperson maybe or the minister for foreign affairs at that time. 
about what was happening in the Philippines. We had a link with the Philippines students, um, which was quite a, a in a what was quite a repressive country at that time. So there were quite a lot of fronts. But again, yeah, we didn't have computers. We didn't have mobile phones. So uh, we used to travel around the country and speak on campus and meet with people who were interested in uh, connecting on these things. We used to have quite large conferences where uh, hui, where they'd all come together and we'd plot out what we'd be doing for the next year and then break it down to what's happening in the next term, the next semester. So uh, fun times. And um, yeah, I think some of the foundations for uh, what we focus on today were starting to be framed at that time. It's amazing to think about how quickly our world changes, isn't it? <laughs> because the way you're describing, I, I remember this as well. I, I didn't have an email address until I started at university. I didn't have a mobile phone. You know, and these days, I think people would be like, oh, let's post about this event that's happening in two hours on Instagram and we'll gather people together. Or, you know, like it's a very just quick moving. But I do wonder sometimes if some of the depth goes away with that quick nature of society, like, it just moves so quickly and and the people that you were going out and meeting with um you know they had to make an effort to be there i don't know i might be too cynical though yeah i i, I don't know it's i don't think it's ever either or it's like you draw on the experience of the previous and you look to the future so uh i remember some of the fun times going out in the middle of the night doing poster runs with um flour and water paste in the back of a car I'm trying not to get caught by the police and things like that. Um, <laughs> you know, there's still posters up about things happening, but we also then replicate those posters online effectively. So you have pop-up protests or, you know, TikTok demos or whatever it is, um, and you're connecting with people, but those principles are still the same, trying to trying to connect, do outreach, um, get on the same page from different perspectives and work out what needs to change first and then um, what are the next steps after that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. So I know this is going to be like fast forwarding through a life, but <laughs> you're you're doing really interesting things today and I want to make sure that we cover those off. So you're you're starting there with the students and things. You're very active in in politics, really. Um, what happened next and, and how did you end up where you are today, kind of full circle in terms of geography um, and yet still active in with communities? Yes, so uh, uh, just briefly, so then I did a year uh, there and then I went to work. Uh, I wanted to be a journalist, so another way of telling the story, uncovering the information, sharing the information. And newspapers at that point um, were foundational to those conversations. Um, there were a range of newspapers around, but um, I ended up going to National Business Review, which seems like a conservative step. But in fact, there was a lot of support for journalistic independence in that paper and a lot of ideas being debated about how things could change and go forward. It was also uh, just before the share market crash in 1987 and National Business Review uh, covered a lot of the why things were happening and um, how they were evolving. So we 
at the time I joined them, it was a weekly paper, then it went to twice a week, then it went to a daily paper. So it was quite an exciting time to be involved in that. And I was there over Black Friday and then kind of recovery restorative process. Um, got together with my partner while I was at university and he'd moved back to Auckland. So I transferred up to work for the Auckland Sun, which was a tabloid paper. Also a lot of fun, people from all around the world working there, but it didn't last. And um, we all got made redundant overnight. I watched my colleagues uh, walking out the door on TV while I was on holiday in the Bay of Islands. <laughs> That's how I found out that I didn't have a job. Um, so uh, that took quite a few weeks of negotiating with uh, the company about redundancies, which was a relatively new concept at that point. And um, so I got connected up through colleagues to Australia, where there, um, Rupert Murdoch had one building that had seven newspapers in it in Melbourne. And so there was quite a lot of work over there. So we all got um, flown over and put up in hotels for a couple of weeks, trained up to work on shock horror computers. And that's the beginning of my digital journey. Um, so I worked there for three years uh, on um, the Melbourne Sun and then the Sunday Sun. So that was in the Herald Sun building. That was really interesting. I was part of the union there and learned a lot about the Greek-Italian culture, which is foundational to Melbourne, a lot about good urban design and got involved in the Jewish community more there. We went travelling, took our bicycles, um, went and cycled in Australia and Indonesia and then uh, came back to New Zealand. We thought if we were going to have kids, we really wanted to be place we're from and the place that we could stand. Uh, so we came back to uh, Tamaki Makaro, where our families are from, and um, built an earth house in Tehinga, Bethel's Beach, Black Sand, West Coast, Surf Beach. And uh, we've got three boys, oldest is now uh, nearly 25. So uh, over when I got back to New Zealand looking for work, and first of all, I worked for Fiji Independent News Service, which was founded on getting information out of Fiji over the coups, and um, then went to work for Waitakere City Council, which was quite a progressive council at the time. Bob Harvey, who'd um, established an ad agency, was independently wealthy, decided to run for mayor. 1992 was the Rio Earth Summit and the creation of Agenda 21. And so that was the foundation of Waitakere City Eco City. So it was both a goal and a journey. And they wanted people who could work in community and work in partnership. So um, I went there, established uh, Keep Waitakere Beautiful. Um, we had the awesome budget of $50,000 to um, set up partnerships. And really, I just went out into the community and, and found out what people were passionate about which was getting rid of the tagging, uh, trapping pests uh, to, to help the environment come back. Um, and uh, and then there was a broader kind of beautification uh, program that included ecological beautification as well as um, murals and all sorts of other things. So um, a lot of partnership work in there. I worked there for 13 years and worked in city design transformation. What does it mean to bring nature into the city? Looked at good urban design and active transport and we started to underground the railway line. We only had one line then. So we had a goal of both double tracking and electrification so that 
uh, we could have 10 minute headways and actually you didn't have to carry a timetable. You could just walk to the station and get around and kids could get around and families could get around. So that was exciting. And then um, undergirding all of this, because there's so many different roles. What was your sort of feeling or ethos like what was the foundation for why you would take on this role or that role because a lot of it comes back to this community you know engaging with community and and hearing what they want and then implementing something was that like a philosophical thing that you wanted to do and this was the way that you did it or was it just here's a job opportunity I'm gonna do this job I'm just curious subvert every job you're in Stephen (laughs) um I think, uh, you know, heart, heart and head is important to me. So I had to, I had to be confident that we could achieve the goals that were set out, um, and also passionate about making it happen. So what we would now call community-led development. So I was really passionate about. So that uh, that was early council community partnership modelling and looking at what that can be um, and how we value it, uh, what the impact is. We didn't really have the language at that time, um, but um, I knew that there was a lot of resource sitting tied up in hard infrastructure in councils, and there was a move through the eco-city to be recognising that communities had a role to play in leading transformation. Um, and that our cities need to benefit everyone. And we can't, we just genuinely can't fit all the cars on the road. Um, and it's not good for our environment anyway. It's not good for people or planet. So how do we do that differently? We need to be empowering communities um, who can tell us what makes sense on the ground and ensure that we include everyone in the journey. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think we need more, more and more of that <laughs> involving the local community and what they what they actually want, right? So, Absolutely. yeah, just talk, talk us through then. Uh, how did you end up in this role? <laughs> so, um, while I was at Waitakere City, um, I had some time off to have uh, children, and my partner and I looked at how we set up. He'd been doing some contracting, so. Um, we decided to switch places and I um, moved to be based at home. He moved back into full-time work and then I did some contract work around having kids and growing up and supporting them to go back to school and so on. He did a bit of that when he was contracting. So it was a nice shared model. What I did with a lot of that contracting time was support um, or Uh, provide services to councils, uh, advising them and designing consultation plans and engagement plans with stakeholders and community. So um, what we found was that um, people didn't understand how to engage with Māori, how to engage with communities, what was important to them, who to talk to, how to have the conversations, when it was appropriate to talk to community, iwi, Māori and Māori organisations. And so um, looked for opportunities to connect um, those resources and those intentions and project planning with Māori so Māori could be uh, helping to determine or determining what their outcome would be like and 
uh, looking for community connections as well. So um, that that was really interesting work. And then um, towards the end of that time, I was doing some governance work. So I was on the board of Helensville Enterprise Trust, which set up the Helensville Community Recycling Centre and the board of Ecomatters Environment Trust, which is the West Auckland Eco Hub. And um, someone told me that the manager from Kaipataki Project had left and that job was on offering. My youngest had just gone to high school. Everyone was out of the house from 7.30 to 4.30. And I thought, well, maybe I could go back to full-time work again. And it was really, when I looked into it, it was a really, um, the job was just made for me. It was just a really good fit. Got on with the board really well. And um yeah, it's been a great journey. So this is my seventh year. Yeah, I was going to ask, so how long is that then? Yeah, so seven years. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm I'm then curious, like, what are some of the things that you're involved in, and in particular, any projects which you're focusing on um, that you'd like to share? I know we're doing this by Zoom, so I can kind of see a background behind you that's talking about the Climate Action Plan. And uh, it sounds like there's a few different initiatives that involve nature. Um, can you describe some of those things for us? And then I'd also love to hear about the like the national groups that you're involved in as well. Sure. So uh, Kaipataki Project, um, we've refreshed, you know, as you do, revisited our strategy. Um, same sort of focus. The way we describe it now is we're an innovative eco-hub growing a sustainable future for people and nature. And... Um, we have some key values uh, that really lead us about manaakitanga, uh, encouraging and uplifting all those we welcome and work with, tanga, so nurturing relationships and reciprocal connections that build belonging to community and place, and kaitiakitanga, developing shared caring for and responsibility to our local places. And that really summarises uh, what we do. Um, we have uh, four focus areas, so regenerative environments and sustainable living. And we, um, through those, we champion Indigenous biodiversity and s- citizen science, and we champion food resilience and soil integrity and Parakore Zero Waste. And then through both, we enable others to live sustainably through growing networks, exchanging knowledge and providing stewardship and experiential learning and behaviour change. And that's really the focus of our programmes. So, um, for example, we've created Network North, so across Auckland's North Shore, Northern Area, bringing all environmental groups together to um, just start to share, to, to get to know each other share what are the gaps, what we need help with, what we can do some, you know, peer mentoring, peer learning, um, and what we need help with to reach out and bring back for the whole group, uh, because we think the worst thing that could happen is that everyone's doing, uh, you know, duplicating and um, where we could be helping each other and the whole competitive funding models that we all work within. Um, and also supporting each other to develop enterprise and self-generated income so that we're diversifying and becoming resilient organisations. So resilient communities, resilient organisations, resilient environment. Um, So we work on things like uh, stream restoration. Uh, We champion Tonga species such as 
Peka Peka Tauroa, the long-tailed bat, is um, a threatened species. And so we're working with volunteers who want to get out in the night and uh, put out the bat monitors and hear their squeaks and find out where they are and then help to protect and enhance the, the ecological niche that they're in. And um, we work with other, uh, like the tuna, the eel in the water, and um, lizards and yeah, other things. So children and families and people get excited by that. Um, we work with, um, again, in a collaborative way. So you may have heard of a concept called daylighting, which is a lot of our streams in the past were pushed underground the idea was that we control where the water went, a little bit laughable in recent times, um, <clears throat> and, and pipe the streams. And um, so that was done a lot, particularly in the 50s to the 70s. And what we found is that it's um, really, it's really uh, detrimental to the environmental health and uh, it's actually created more problems and it's reduced the biodiversity in the stream. So we work with um, children at schools and families, people who live nearby, local businesses. And um, we, we're working on an amazing project actually in Northcote around the Awataha stream. We were collaborating with Kainga Ora. They've got a huge redevelopment housing project there. Ekipanuku, which is council's land development arm, and they're looking to redevelopment redevelop the town centre, the parks and so on to respond to flooding issues and um, and the, well, de degenerating building quality and um, also working with the local community and the council and transport and so on um, to engage everyone in what we can do to create, uh, uh, to regenerate the town centre and its full expression. And so um, it's been a lot of engagement with local mana whenua created a Māori indicator framework that talks about bringing the health of the whole environment, the town, the built environment, as well as the natural environment and people from uh, being degraded and having no health or life through to Māori tu, Māori ora, life, full of life and life-giving, and what are the different indicators along that journey. So, for example, one of the work streams is focused on parakore zero waste, and we're all working together. So we're uh, working with Kainga Ora um, on community gardens so that people can bring their food scraps to a food, um, to a compost hub in the school and the kids run it, the kids uh, planting kumara with their families and they're creating the gardens and they've got the food scraps and the compost, creating soil and then they grow the food together and um, close that whole loop locally and organically. Um, we're working with uh, Ikipanuku, they're contracting developers to do builds. So they're requiring that they have waste systems in place in the design. Um, and we've also set up a zero waste hub to engage with the businesses. And we're doing a, a trial there uh, so that all the businesses can bring all their food waste together, take it out of the rubbish, out of the landfill, um, so it's win, win, win. So that's exciting. That's great. So just yeah. one or two things then. <laughs> that's awesome. There's so many different initiatives that you're involved in. Um, are there some of course, of these... it's not it's not it's not me, Stephen. You know, it's um, the whole team. So it's a fantastic team that I get to work with and our partners. Great. 
Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, no, I agree. It's never it's never one person. <laughs> There's always a huge network and, and people involved. Um, and is there anything there that you think is unusual or different in how you're doing it that other parts of the country might learn from or or go, oh, there's something new or I do think that um working collectively uh to deliver the aspirations of mana whenua is really special and <clears throat> is helping us all to understand, you know, refer back to our previous conversation where we talk about restoring the Māori. I think, you know, some people will have heard that phrasing before. Uh, we've really been required to develop a much more detailed understanding of what that means and we're still looking to understand that. So that, that's been really great and to understand what does life-giving mean you know we have the term regenerative in English um, so I, I would really commend looking at Māori indicator frameworks um, and partnering with local mana whenua in your areas um, to uh, to use that model yeah very special yeah that's great and then I'd love to as we're sort of drawing towards the end here just thinking about the national groups that you're involved in. Can you share with us about that and what's going on at a national level? Uh, so Hypartiki Project is one of four eco-hubs in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, um, along with uh, Waiheke uh, Eco Matters in the West and Monaco Beautification Trust in the South. Um, and we're one of 25 hubs nationally. So we have a collective um, organization called Enviro Hubs Aotearoa, names on the box, and um, <clears throat> together we have a collective contract with the Ministry for the Environment to support those hubs. So we support um, by having a national, uh, small, but very uh, effective staffing um, who can support our hubs and support our national aspirations collectively. We also support each hub through uh, grants, through a grants process to support operations and projects. Um, so that helps them know that there'll be some funding there for them um, as part of that network. So we have a definition of what a hub is, um, and it needs to be the center of a network. So we're not just supporting you know, one organization. It's very important to us that we're expanding, empowering, and connecting and collaborating. And that's the mm. core of what we do. Um, yeah. That's great. And what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put links to everything that we've talked about so that if people want to, they can click and then they can find out more. Because as we talked about earlier, there's online, you can get a lot of information. Um, yeah. And it's great to hear about things going on, you know, not just within Tamaki Makaro and Auckland, but also across the country, because hopefully these are the types of things that can um, end up in all parts of the country, that every city or every region would have initiatives which start looking at um, these sorts of issues and practically talking with the community as well. That's right, and I would encourage people to get in touch with their closest um, eco-hub, because um, we're always looking for new partners and we're always interested in um, who else and what else is in the community that we can support. So it's definitely reciprocal. Um, 
<clears throat> there, there's some great things happening. One of our newest members is called Y Wanaka, and they've um, grown up around uh, restoring uh, catchment, water catchments. And um, yeah, we have people, we have hubs that have grown up around all sorts of different initiatives and have different specialties. So that means that we have a lot of peer mentoring uh, across our hubs as well. Mm, that's great. Well, we'll put some links in the show notes. And I think it just leads me to say thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And it's been interesting to get to know about your life as well. We kind of spent a lot of time talking about your parents and, you know, their backgrounds and what led them to maybe shape your childhood. Um, but I always love to see themes that run through a life. And talking with you, I can definitely hear that early on you know, your parents were involved in protests and they were involved in community action and they were involved in education. And then your experiences through high school, living overseas, coming back, getting involved in the students movement and then journalism and, and those that career path. And now what you're doing today, of course, makes perfect sense because there is a linking back through your life. And that's why I like this long form of podcast, because you can kind of hear the whole journey of somebody rather than just saying, what do you do today, Janet? You know, like now we know a bit of that background and history. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, there's kind of a synergy with the name of the podcast, which is Seeds planting things so that new things can grow. And I see that you're really involved um, in a lot of that. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for your time, Stephen. And thank you for all of the podcasts that you put together and the work that you do. Um, yeah, re we really appreciate it out here on the ground. I'm glad. And yeah, you're actually somebody who's listened to some of the previous episodes, I know. So I always like to have people who, who endorse it. You know, you're my unofficial ambassador out there. Um, <laughs> along with all the other listeners <laughs> telling people about the show because I can only tell so many people and they don't really believe me if I say it's uh, worth listening to. So, <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Janet. For me, there was a bunch of highlights and I loved hearing her story and in particular how her parents had influenced her and then what she does today, there was a real consistency in the theme of her life. If you enjoyed this conversation, then why not tell one other person about the show? Until next time. <music>